conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can follow Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram at Welcome to Geekdom and on Twitter at Geekdom Pod. There are links to those in the show notes. You can also support the show on Patreon, where I will be releasing bonus content for this podcast and my other podcast, Chat Cemetery. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. There are links to all of those things in the show notes, so be sure to do that. It is a huge help for the show, and I really appreciate it. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined by Marjani Rawls, and we are talking all about Blade, the 1998 movie. I didn't realize this was so old, MJ. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels like 1998 is a lifetime away. Yeah, it really is. But what I was really surprised by was how great this cast is, because I went into this having never seen it. All I knew was that Wesley Snipes was Blade. I did not know that Stephen Dorff was you know, sort of the main villain, and that Chris Christopherson was in this, Donald Logue, and just so many other familiar faces throughout this. And, you know, I apologize if I am mispronouncing her name, but Bushy Wright was fantastic as Karen, and it just all came together really well. And even though, you know, some of the effects are certainly dated now in 2021, when we're discussing this, it was still a very fun time. Oh, so you just saw it recently? Yeah, I literally watched it last night for the first time. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, The first time that I saw it was, I think my uncle, yeah, my uncle got it on VHS. uh, Because he was a huge, he's a huge like Kung Fu fan. And he was a uh, huge like Wesley Snipes fan too. Uh so yeah, I didn't get to see it in theaters. I was like way too young, but uh yeah, I watched it on VHS and I loved it. Uh I mean, it was an R-rated movie which was at the time unheard of. Like we it's because like hard well, you think of like the MCU now as being like this uber successful like every movie is going to hit a benchmark of one billion dollars or something around there well not not in blades time like it was very making a superhero film was very risky and the fact that like new line cinema took a chance on this and that it was a big hit uh it made what 70 million dollars at the ux box office and 131 worldwide for an R-rated film back then, that was really good. And like in and like in turn, like it really showed like uh it showed studios that superhero films can be profitable. Yeah, and I just want to give a little correction on and Boucher, right? Ah. So definitely mispronounce that. I should have looked that up before we started this. But, you know, also directed by Stephen Norrington, written by David S. Goyer, who 
We know for some other superhero-related movies that we didn't like quite as much, but I think one of the things that really stood out to me while I was watching this was just how well Wesley Snipes had down sort of those superhero moves and poses. It's campy at times, but it works with this movie, and this really made me want like a MCU horror edition. <laughs> well, I mean... Fingers crossed. Uh, I think we're getting that. Uh, maybe starting with Morbius in January. And I know Blade is in production now. Uh, I know David S. Goyer, he's written, you know, Blade 1, 2, and 3. Uh, he's also written on, like, the Dark Knight trilogy, Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman. So, like, he's very well versed in superhero genre. I, I believe that this was the, f- yeah, this was the first. A comic book film that he wrote on and for that to be kind of like his stamp on like the I guess the Marvel universe and taking a like a Marvel character that is not not as well known as like the Spider-Mans the X-Men and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and making it a hit and then having Wesley Snipes who just oozes that cool factor you know what I mean like he's very stoic He doesn't show, like, a lot of emotion. He's very committed to the goal of killing all vampires. And, but he, he has his quirks, like, especially, like, uh, like, in the beginning of the movie where, like, the cops shoot him in, uh, you know, in that hospital scene where he's, and he's like, what the fuck are you out of your damn mind? Like, <laughs> it's, like, outbursts like that. And then, like, the, like, some of his one-liners, like, sometimes motherfuckers skate uphill. Like, you know what I mean? Like. I skate uphill. Like it's he definitely embodied that character. Absolutely. And if we take a quick look at David S. Goyer's track record, he's done stuff in the horror world prior to this. You know, you have some science fiction stuff too, and this kind of blends a little bit of both of those things. Although the science fiction in this is not quite as big as some of the other movies he's done, like, you know, the Puppet Masters and whatnot. But this felt like David Goyer's sweet spot almost because it blended horror with the superhero element and a little bit of sci-fi magical kind of stuff happening too. And, you know, probably our least favorite of the mentions, Batman versus Superman. I know there are things to like about that movie. But as far as that stuff goes, and you know, even Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which I don't think I've seen, but I'll be interested to go check that out now that I have seen Blade, especially. And I, I've seen it. It's a it's a very interesting sequel, <laughs> I, I will say. I'll just say that. Yeah, I need to go back and watch the first one. I think I've seen the first one for the Ghost Rider movies, but not th- that one. So I think, you know, this is a movie that hit at the right time for that sort of horror and superhero thing. Cause like you said, it made 131 million overall. The budget was 45 million. Like I said, some of those effects look very much like video game effects now almost. And it still worked for me. And you know, the story behind this, we see the, birth of Blade, if you will. He thinks his mother has been dead all of these years. And now he is going and 
finding out all of this stuff that he didn't know about before. He kind of knew about Frost and, you know, that this war was coming, but then he finds out his mother did not die all of those years ago, and she was actually turned and, from the looks of it, stopped aging shortly after giving birth to him. Yeah, when I was, like, looking up things for this movie, like, some of the casting choices would have been really interesting, because I know at first when they were developing the movie like as early as the 1990s like LL Cool J was supposed to be Blade and they wanted Jet Li to be Deacon Frost but he chose to do uh, Lethal Weapon 4 so I mean I I think that they did the right thing settling with Wesley Snipes to Stephen Dwarf they definitely um, act off of each other well especially with Deacon Frost is the villain, but he also, there's also this dynamic of old vampires and new vampires and purebloods and those who are turned and like it, there's that little side story that kind of keeps his storyline going. Yeah. I I mean, and also with the diamond and dynamic with blade because he's half vampire, half human. So like he has, all of their strengths and none of their weaknesses. So he can walk out in daylight. Uh, there's a scene where I, I we watched it and I'm like, how is Frost out in the sunlight? And I'm like, oh, it's just as simple as like him putting on a ton of sunscreen a, and looking a super ton of sunscreen. <laughs> like, like I'm like, okay, then like why why did he blade in his in his blood floor? They, they could just put a ton of sunscreen on and be okay apparently so yeah that was a little wacky but all in all like what how the movie kind of unveils unveils itself especially with uh blades relationship with whistler and how they're kind of they have a father-son relationship even though they're kind of cold to each other um I like how the movie kind of I like how the movie enters the audience as events that are already happening. Like Blade and Whistler have been on this crusade to rid the world of vampires for quite a while. Like the vampires have insulated themselves in all forms of society. They're, you know, they're cops. Then there's like, you know, I guess human concubines that like work for them and stuff like that. So like instead of it being an origin story, like the movie is smart and and it takes the audience of face value and saying like, no, this, all this is already happening. Like when blade shows up in the first scene in the club, everybody's like afraid. Everybody's in awe of him, which I thought was badass. Yeah. It's really like we're going on this journey with Karen not Blade, because she's thrown into it in the midst of all this, just like the audience is. And I thought that was pretty clever, because it kind of shifts your perspective, because we don't know a ton about Blade, she doesn't know a ton about Blade. And even though we got that opening scene of the birth, and, you know, his mom having been bitten and bleeding out all over the place from her neck, there's no real context given to us in that moment and we get all of that sort of as Karen and Blade are getting more of that information and I 
still think most of it comes from Karen's perspective because, you know, we do spend quite a bit of time with her when she's used as bait. And I love that they also introduced familiars in this, which is something when I think about familiars, I think more of like witches, you know, like Salem in Sabrina and stuff like that. Yeah, the cop, uh, the, the the pesky cop that goes around and he kind of like, uh, uh, Officer Krieger. Yeah. 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 He's like, okay, this is a familiar. Uh, another thing that I like, especially with Karen, she gets bitten in the beginning of the the movie and they somehow like administer kind of like a serum to keep her from turning. But in turn, because Blade seems like this unstoppable killing machine, you find out that he takes a serum to suppress his, his thirst for blood and he's building a tolerance to it. And the movie comes full circle where, you know, he gets worn down and it's kind of like this all this lost moment where Deacon Frost is summoning Lamagra, the blood god, and he has to return drinking blood in order to regain his his powers or or of some sort, which I thought like was a really cool like full circle moment that they introduced. Yeah, and we obviously cannot talk about this movie without talking about the fight scenes because I mentioned how some of the effects looked a little video game like and you do get a little bit of that in the fight scenes when he suddenly like stops to pose almost but at the same time it was not only fitting for the time but those fights were actually really well done you know you have that big scene at the underground club that's like in the back of a meat packing plant or something kind of crazy like that. And that moment that Blade shows up, you just know something is going to go down because it's a room full of people, more specifically vampires, which you realize once you see like the big bloodbath sign and then you see the sprinklers go off with all of the blood coming out of them. And I just thought that was really great imagery to to introduce Blade. It is an R-rated film, so it does have like it, it is very you know no pun intended bloody. Yes, it like it's a vampire movie. You know, like the movie starts with like a big blood rave of vampires uh, drinking blood from like a sprinkler system. You know what I mean? Like that's how the movie starts. There's a like almost a division between. The gore, but also the stylish way of how they, how like Blade kills uh, vampires, like they kind of disappear into ash. Uh, they, I think they perfect it more in Blade 2. It looks a little bit cooler. Of course, that's, you know, like Del Toro also. But yeah, I, I think that like it's like you said, like it's a, it's a video gamey type like type deaths that they all go through the fight scenes. I love they're fierce. They're brutal. A little tidbit is that the fight scene at the end between blade and frost, when he becomes the blood God, that was actually not originally in the movie. They added that with reshoots. Like I thought it was interesting because like the movie was originally supposed to end with um, that scene where, 
uh, Frost becomes like the blood god or, or Lamagra. And that's how the movie was supposed to end. And then uh, test audiences hated it. So they went, went ahead and added that fight scene, which I, which I love. I, I love the, the shots where like uh, Blade is doing stuff with the sword and then like uh, Frost is kind of mimicking him. Um, and then with like that single vial of, uh, the serum and how he like kicks it into his forehead. Like, I thought that was pretty badass too. Yeah. Not to mention all of the weapons that he has. He obviously has the big sword and we find out that it can do some other things too. And it blows up a few hands here and there. And, you know, he has his silver stakes if you will and just the fact that you see how prepared he is and how much of a beating he's willing to take because he's taking on so many of them at once and he's only one person quote-unquote person anyway and you know having Whistler come in and shoot up the place that had all of you know the what did they call it it was like the vampire bible basically yeah yeah, it had these massive pages like these pages were so big they were at least like three feet by two feet like this must have been an insanely huge book and whistler just comes in shooting up the place makes a comment about how he's too old for this and you know they have a little bit of banter to bring some levity to this because of how gory it is because of how dark it is and I think that worked really well because there are some moments where you find yourself laughing and it's not this movie that's taking itself too seriously it certainly knows that it is this big superhero and vampire movie oh it's definitely it's definitely comical it's definitely meta at some points especially with the vampire lore uh I, i've always felt that you know i'm, I'm trying to pronounce his name uh his character name because udo kier is in there he's the vampire elder oh dragonetti so like i always felt that like and, and again watching that movie of deacon frost kind of like this like punk vampire who thinks he knows everything but he was never like, he was never brought up as a vampire. He was turned by somebody. Yeah. And the fact that, like, he's coming at Dragonetti and all these elders and ultimately brutally killing Dragonetti, too. Like, he removes his teeth and he has him burned in the sunlight, which, again, they're dressed in, like, those um, motorcycle helmets in all black. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay, like, again, like, you could just walk around like this and everything would be fine. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But... I thought that that was very kind of on the ball of like, you know, the old ways of like what you think of vampirism is like these like or or the old ways of thinking that they had like, you know, we will live with the humans. We'll work with them. We'll have a treaty. And like Deacon Frost is like, no, like we feed on humans. We we literally have we literally cannot die. We like regenerate and everything like that. So, like, why are we doing this? We should be ruling over them. So, like, that kind of warring sense of ideologies were was pretty cool. And then you just have Blade who said, like, kill them all. Like, I just want them all dead. Yeah, this was definitely a movie that took me by surprise because I knew that people 
I've talked to about other superhero movies had seen this, and I never really looked on Letterboxd or anything to see what the people I follow there and what my friends had rated it. So I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this. And another thing that surprised me, though, is the character named Pearl. I was not expecting this giant blob of a character who kind of reminded me of Jabba the Hutt in, you know, this form to appear as, like, the tech person in this. Oh, yeah. Pearl, of course, is, like, uh, the mode in the movie that, you know, they're looking for information and then, you know, they have to kind of torture him to get it out. You know what I mean? Like, it's... (laughs) Uh, and and ultimately they get it out of him to find out who the blood god is and why it, Frost is trying to bring the blood god back. Uh, I thought it was like a little, a nice little like break in the action and like, you're like, ill man. Like who's this character who like looks at all like the vampire text and like all the information here and, and things like that. Like the, the character design for Pearl, uh, was really was was interesting to say the least. I would say, yeah. And this didn't come across in the movie, but there's this little trivia fact, and it says the director of the film, Stephen Norrington, stated the cause of Pearl's obese size was the creature gaining a cannibalistic lust for infants and children, as he loves to eat their hearts. How pleasant! Oh, great! Yeah, fantastic, tasty. <laughs> uh, another tidbit. Uh, there's a deleted scene, and the director is actually Morbius. You could look it up okay. on YouTube. I know, bec- I know, because you are very eagerly anticipating the Sony uh, <laughs> Jared Leto Morbius oh, yeah, coming yeah, out in uh, yeah in uh, January. But yes, there was there's supposed to be a tie-in there that they killed. That's kind of a bummer because this definitely could have been the start of this sort of horror universe for Marvel and the fact that, you know, Sony now has the rights to Morbius because, you know, this was by no means a Sony movie. It was like you said, New Line Cinema, Marvel. So it was before, well before all of the MCU and everything like that happening. And it's one of those what if scenarios where you're kind of like, okay, but what if they had done Morbius when they did Blade. And, you know, maybe we don't have three Blade movies. Maybe we have one or two Blade movies and a Morbius movie and sort of see where that goes. And obviously now we have Venom too that sort of leans into horror elements a bit more. And while I do think we are getting more horror type movies from Marvel, I think they're still going to rely heavily on sort of connecting a bunch of these things. And obviously, like, Blade and Morbius is a connection that makes sense. Whereas, you know, like, Blade and Venom wouldn't really make sense or something like that. So I would kind of love to see more standalone things like this, in a sense, too. Because when I said I was left wanting like this MCU horror edition. I didn't necessarily mean in the same way that the MCU has all of these movies connected because one, that's a lot of work, not only for the people working on the movies, but 
for fans too. I know people love keeping up with all of the Easter eggs and stuff like that. But for me, I get exhausted doing that and keeping track of, okay, this one little scene that we saw in the Avengers gets called back to in this other thing. And it's just too much sometimes. Yeah, I don't really know what the plan, because presumably, spoiler alert, um, after the events of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Venom is in the MCU now. And we don't know what's really going to happen with uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. So if you looked at the Morbius trailer, it's referencing three different Spider-Man universes. It's referencing the MCU-verse, the Garfield-verse, and the original Raimi-verse. So it's like, okay, where is this in the lore? Blade, I mean, the MCU Blade is coming. And the connection between Morbius and Blade would be a no-brainer because they're they're both in each other's comics. You know what I mean? Like it's you know like uh, I believe that like you know Morbius bites him in in uh, Spider-Man comic and gives him like super speed and strength. So that would be a no-brainer to me. But I have no idea what Marvel is and Sony are doing. You know, I think that will be more clear once we see spider-man no way home in december so until then it's just kind of guessing but in terms of this movie and looking back like you said like it's it's nice to know like it's nice to watch a movie or a superhero film and everything is not connected and then there's like a like a super secret you know teaser at the end it's just kind of in its own little universe. And that's why I think, I mean, I, I love Blade 2 even more, but like this kind of created an appetite for like, all right, cool. Like not only can we do superhero films, um, we can do them very gritty. And like you see that now with Deadpool and uh, Logan, maybe Birds of Prey, like, you know, our rated films. Uh, and the superhero verse have a have a market. You know what I mean? Like it, like they can be successful. Yeah, they absolutely can. And the fact that this was back in the late '90s and then early 2000s for the sequels, you know, just goes to show that there is a place for this. And you know, we kind of saw that with Deadpool too, because that was rated R and not necessarily tied directly to anything when it came out. But, you know, to go back to the story a little, Frost wanted to essentially incite war between vampires and humans. And Karen stays by Blade's side and at the end of it offers to cure him. And he's like, no, instead, make me a better serum. And that sort of sets up the sequel. And I think, you know, it was great to have that there because it still could have ended that way. It didn't have to have a sequel necessarily with that ending. It wasn't like they left a ton of loose ends because Blade does go after Frost. He does stop him, at least, you know, it appears so. And you have all of the elders who have been dealt with then. So it's really just this nice wrapped up story that still leaves you wanting more because of how interesting both Blade and 
Karen are and you want to see what journey they go on next. I think that works partly because the the setup between Blade and Whistler. And that that's in the performances of Wesley Snipes and Christofferson because, I mean, they're two very headstrong guys. You'll never hear them say, like, I love you or, like, you know, I love you, dad, or I love you, son, or something like that. Like, they'll never come out of them, especially when Blade finds that Whistler's been bitten. Whistler gives him the gun and just says... Or it tells him, give me the goddamn gun. And then says, like, walk the F away. And, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, that that's the extent. Like, you know that they love each other. But also, Blade loses his mentor. Like, Blade loses the guy that helps him make all his weapons. So, at the end of the film, when you find him in Moscow, like, with that badass scene where he, like, says something in Russian and, like... Uh, pulls out a sword like it's dope like it's it's also and i i know it gets undone in blade 2 which i mean if if we talk about it we could talk more about that where like i know some of my friends who've seen blade 2 aren't really happy with that choice but just from this film it's like okay like blade is on his own he's gonna have to he has a new set of problems where he's now he's world hopping or or country hopping to find vampires and and other countries and other, you know, other places, but he has to do it alone while like, it's presumed that Karen, that Jensen is making a stronger serum for him. So that definitely works really well as, you know, okay, we know there's potential for more here. And I don't know if they knew when this movie came out, that they would have two more or if it was dependent on this movie's success because, you know, now we're so used to sequels and especially, you know, in in the superhero genre, it's not something that's uncommon for horror, for instance, because we've been getting sequels since, what, the 70s and 80s with Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Child's Play, so on and so forth. Basically, every horror franchise you can think of, that's when all of the sequels started. And with this, you can tell that they were like, we're just going to try this thing. It's going to be out there. It's going to be dark. It's going to be superhero mashed up with horror. And it worked. And I'm actually kind of surprised how long it took to get, you know, more Marvel stuff going other than X-Men in between, you know, like Blade and Iron Man? Yeah, I I mean, like, it was made for a $45 million budget, which now we're like, you know, they make, if you put, like, six paranormal activities together, you might get that, you might get $45 million in a budget. That's, like, maybe a fifth of what they make for superhero films now but 45 million on a superhero film back then was a risk like yeah you may not make that back for it to make over like 130 million worldwide like that that was a, a good validation of okay like we could make these films we can people care about you know superheroes and stuff like that outside of like the made for 
the made-for-TV movies that may that were on like CBS and and things like that with like the bad costumes and stuff. Like, hey, all right, we can actually put money into this, and they'll work. Absolutely. And one other thing I want to quickly talk about here is the fact that you have Quinn, who is this minion of Frost, and he just keeps coming back for more. And it never goes well for him. You know, he gets his arms partially chopped off. He gets new hands and then he gets, you know, completely destroyed by the end. He gets burned up and he goes through so much in this movie. You almost want to feel bad for him, but you can't because he's also just so dumb. (laughs) That's another aspect that I really like is that like, when Quinn and Blade meet each other for the first time in the movie, it, it's hinted at like he's taken limbs from him before. So he's like, okay, like, do you, am I taking an arm? And then, uh, like, when Quinn is back and like scared of Blade, he's like, he took my hand again. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really like that aspect because, like, where Frost is very serious about this goal. And he has his girlfriend and all the stuff like that. Quinn just is a vampire that wants to party. That's what he wants to do. He he lives in this lavish lifestyle of being a vampire and, and kind of just living it up. Yeah. And, you know, Frost is kind of like that, too. But he's more calculated. He knows what he's doing. Or at least he thinks he does until the end. But you have just these completely different personalities between these two characters that are really supposed to be working together. And I think, you know, that kind of gives you a little tension here and there too, because Quinn keeps screwing up and Frost is kind of like, fine, I'll do everything myself sort of thing. And, you know, even I believe the character's name is Raquel. You know, she is someone who sort of just brings this human in and it does not work as planned. You also have Mercury and she is not super, super helpful. She's a little more helpful than Raquel. And there's just so much about this movie that I enjoyed. And just that juxtaposition there between Frost, who is in charge, and then all of these people under him who kind of don't have their priority straight. And, you know, Raquel, maybe less so because she was only in it early on. And we don't really see her again, from what I remember. But you, you know what her purpose is right away. And then she just kind of goes off and does her own thing and does not keep track of this human she brought into the rave. So that was, you know, another thing I noticed throughout this. I mean, like when it's in the contrast of where everybody meets. So like, the elders meet in like this underground basement with a big table and you know like big sterile table it's dark they uh, meet for business and they talk about you know money accounts while you know like the new vampires or the turnt vampires live in like beautiful apartments (laughs) they go to clubs they go out they live like young people like invincible young people it's a cool contrast. And then 
you have Blade who lives in just the big world where, you know, warehouse with an old man. <laughs> so it was like, you know, like I like the that there were distinct environments also within a New York City landscape. Like uh, the first time that, you know, Blade and Frost meet each other, I think it's within Central Park during the day. Like people are like out jogging, out with friends. Meanwhile, there, you know, there's like this hostage situation with a little girl <laughs> that, that uh, Frost has. Like it, it, I like that the world of Blade is very ingratiated into society just seamlessly. Like people are just like living their lives, doing their thing. Oh, by the way, you know, there are vampires around. Yeah. Also, here's a shootout on the street. All right, it's over. We'll just continue walking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is, I guess it is New York, but like at the same time, like, you know, you just saw a, like a dude run like through the street in super speed and they're just like, all right, well, I got this like train to catch. I got to go. <laughs> and honestly, big cities like New York have always kind of felt like that in a sense. It's like everyone has somewhere to go, has something to do, and they aren't going to wait for anyone, really. You know, there's just sort of this fast pace about certain big cities, especially on the East Coast, I would say. And, you know, maybe it's because sometimes it gets really cold and you don't want to linger outside. I feel that. I I was in Philly for a few years, you know. I know you feel that too, but well, Blade. Well, Blade. I don't think that it would hit if it was like made in like North Dakota. Somewhere. Yeah, that would exactly. be like John John Carpenter's Vampires or something like that. Yeah, and you know, I don't think I have too much else to say about this one. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up here? I mean, it's it, it was one of the first uh, superhero movies that I got to watch probably a little too soon because I was like really young when i saw it um it's sorry mom and dad but <laughs> i mean i enjoy it like every time that it comes on i watch it it's just like one of those things like uh, i think somebody said like every time dark knight comes on tnt i find myself just sit down and watching it it's the same thing with blade like i'm very glad that not only blade as a african-american lead succeeded it paved the way for superheroes and like uh, also films like Black Panther. Yeah. And the fact that like you can have minority led superhero uh, films and in general, and they could be profitable and people will receive them. Like I'm super thankful for this movie. Yeah. It really did a lot for the superhero genre. And I want to do some recommendations here and, if you dig the vampire vibe of this movie, I'm going to recommend Dr. Sleep because even though those vampires are a little different, they're sort of, you know, these quasi-immortal vampires and they go after steam instead of blood necessarily. It's just another fun vampire horror story in my opinion. But MJ, how about you? Any Rex? Uh, I, I just want to say that... um Rebecca Ferguson is amazing in that movie. Oh, you put me on the spot here for Vampire Rex. I'm going to have to go. Well, you know that I'm a fan of this specifically with Stephen King. 
So I'm going to recommend the, be for my recommendation, uh, the TV miniseries of Salem's Lot. That scene where the boy, where the vampire boy emerges out of like through the window at night. Are we talking the 1979 one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I know they're redoing it. They've redone it once already. So I wanted to clarify whether we were talking 79 <laughs> or 2004. And then there's an upcoming one. So many Salem's lots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not, not the, no, not the 2004 <laughs> one. Uh, but like, run to the 1979 one. I think it's on like DVD. If you still use DVDs yeah. uh, for like, Nine ninety nine. It's I think it's all, and it's also on Prime. You could rent for like three bucks. It's a nice little mini series. Tobe Hooper is the director. If you don't know who Tobe Hooper is, he did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, he also did Poltergeist, Body Bags, uh, fun stuff. Body Bags, uh, Life Force. Um, yeah, I love that mini series. So if you're in for some late uh halloween stuff please uh, yeah seek it watch that movie yeah well those are our stephen king recommendations for my non-stephen king podcast so (laughs) go check those out and then you can listen to the episodes of chat cemetery on them because i definitely have done episodes for both of those it works out you know look at that look at that like Full circle. Yeah, exactly. Well, Marjani, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Blade. We will definitely cover Blade 2 and Blade Trinity. And, you know, this should be a fun little series of Blade movies to discuss. Yeah, it's going to be fun talking about uh, Blade Trinity and all the stuff that went down (laughs) with that movie. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you again.